take this permission from the uh, Sangha, the monastics, monks and nuns, and from Jack, moderator, and gives me a chance to uh, present a reflection on monasticism. What I say is, is, uh, is only for consideration, contemplation, uh, it's not in any attempt trying to, no attempt to um, convince you of anything or to in any way uh, uh, intimidate or uh, any other tradition or any other monastic tradition, but just to try to explain the, the reasons and uh, for this particular style that I happened to to, uh, to have uh, become a member of the Theravadan Buddhist tradition uh, as it is uh, practiced in the forest uh, monastery in northeast Thailand. And this, uh, well, I discovered this tradition uh, seemingly by accident, uh, coincidence. Uh, I found since I've become a monk, my life is filled with kind of miraculous coincidences. <laughs> And I think this is part of the magic of monasticism, is it seems to put you in touch with something that you can't quite figure out uh, from your conditioned mind what's, what's really happening or where it comes from. But uh, one does uh, find a sense of the miraculous in monastic life. Uh, this tradition is, was mainly, uh, <coughs> I think probably it was, uh, an oral tradition uh, mostly passed down from teacher to disciple, maybe from the time of the Lord Buddha himself. It's, it's, uh, it's, it tends to be very much uh, within the very basic Vinaya discipline that, that the Buddha established, the, the, the rules for the, the monks, and this was, and they've tried, and the idea is to remain very much within those limitations of this Vinaya discipline. And these forest monasteries in northeast Thailand, that's, their, that's what they try to do. It's not an academic type of Buddhism. In fact, we were almost discouraged from uh, reading or studying very much. The, the main emphasis was on uh, living within the restraint and limitation of our discipline and to reflect, develop this reflective capacity of the human mind uh, to be able to see all forms of uh, deceit, uh, conceit, uh, fears, desires of all sorts in order to let them go. And the main emphasis was on the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the kind of foundation teaching, the first teaching that the Lord Buddha gave after his enlightenment as what we call the Four Noble Truths. So that has been the main thrust and emphasis as far as, as uh, our Buddhist, uh, 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 the, the Dhamma, the actual practice of the Dhamma has been through a continuous, ongoing reflection and contemplation of these Four Noble Truths while remaining within the, the strict limitation of the Vinaya discipline. Now the purpose of this practice is to 
realized ultimate reality, or realized nirvana. In, in our tradition is nibbana. We have a dialect of, called Pali, which is uh, an ancient language related to Sanskrit. So in the Sanskrit they say nirvana, and in, in our tradition it's nibbana. means the same thing. Uh, it actually means the non-attachment to anything at all. It's the experience, the realization of not being attached. Uh, and this realization is, is what the reflection on the Four Noble Truths allows us. So the, the reason for becoming a monk or a nun in the Theravada tradition is the only reason and the only aim is to realize Nibbana or total liberation from delusion. <laughs> Uh, and that's the only reason uh, to become, that's the, that's the main focus and the goal of uh, Buddhist monks and nuns within the Theravada tradition. Although, as religion becomes established and institutionalized, as it is in Thailand, uh, there are many other reasons, lesser reasons for becoming monks and nuns, uh, but in, in, in our particular uh, Tradition in the in the forest tradition of, of Ajahn Chah, he was he he was trying to encourage the original intention. So he was he was definitely uh, encouraging us to make that our intention to ordain to become a monk only for the realization of nibbana, to be free from all delusion. Then the establishment of the tradition. Uh, a, a tradition is is something that's handed down. It means it's it comes <coughs> from uh, someone else. So, the the Theravadan or the the Buddhist tradition itself would would be all of them trace their their roots back to the uh, Lord Buddha uh, Siddhartha Gautama uh, of India two thousand five hundred thirty three years ago in India. And, and so we very much uh, take his teaching and study it and practice it for this realization of Nibbana. The teaching itself is, is a very simple one. It's not a complicated teaching. Uh, he pointed to the uh, experience of suffering that is common to all human beings. Uh, and the first noble truth is to understand, in, in other words, to really uh, look at your own suffering. It's not contemplating the nature of suffering as it happens to others so much as really looking at yourself, your body, your mind, the attachments to it, uh, the delusions you have about it, and seeing that the result of that attachment and those delusions lead you always to some form of anguish or despair or fear uh, and, and that's the suffering of, of that is common to every human being who has not realized uh, the truth. Then the second noble truth is a further investigation which we, we reflect on the arising through the grasping of desires out of ignorance then we, we, uh, we are caught in this arising desire all the time to to get something or get rid of something 
And so the insight is to let go of desire, not, is not a repressing desire or getting rid, but a letting go uh, through understanding that the grasping of desire is the origin of suffering. And the third noble truth is to, is to uh, realize the non-grasping of desire, because as you let go and there's no more attachment, then you realize what it is like to not be attached to desire, and desire, of course, ceases. Desire uh, is an impermanent condition that ceases. So there's the realization of cessation of desire, and from that comes the uh, insight into the Eightfold Path, through this, this kind of perfect understanding, then we develop and live our lives according to this Eightfold Path, uh, which is based on this understanding and moral, uh, then the understanding also follows that we have the right uh, uh, aspiration and the right uh, uh, attitudes towards action and speech and livelihood and then the, uh, the, right, the perfect development of the heart, the, the energy, the, the mindfulness and concentration that uh, is in perfect balance as, as the, say, the emotional nature, the, the physical nature, the intellectual nature, all become one perfectly balanced, freed uh, a, a realization in developing this Eightfold Path. So the monastic forms, their aim is to develop this eight, to, to have these insights and then develop through the life uh, based on morality and renunciation, this Eightfold Path. Uh, because we do have insights, but this is, as many of you know who've been on meditation retreats, uh, just through calming the mind and through restraint and uh, uh, just through that, calming, through restraint and calming down, you begin to have insights into, into yourself, into life into all kinds of, into the, into the universe that we're a part of. Uh, but oftentimes when, when one leaves a meditation retreat, uh, after one's had maybe very profound insights, the, the way of life, the whole uh, attitude and experience afterward is, is, is an endless uh, kind of exasperating experience where you're just trying to get through a day in a society that has no appreciation and no real interest in the realization of Nibbana, as <laughs> I'm sure most of California is, is not really interested in that. Uh, monastic life is, is very simple. It's, it's, even though it looks complicated, if you, if you looked at our discipline, uh, you would think, oh, well, so many rules and, and it's so complicated. But like anything, it it it's merely has the appearance of being complicated because uh, when you're, like if you're reading an instruction manual like to how to drive a car and you've never driven one uh, and you read the, the, the advice and instructions on how to do it, you think, oh, it's so complicated. You have, what do you do first? You put put the clutch in, or what, what is it that first have to do, and then this, and then that, and the 
so forth. And if you read it just on that level, it, you can assume that it's so complicated you couldn't possibly ever learn to do it. But actually, just uh, getting in the car and starting from, from the beginning, uh, eventually you find driving uh, not complicated at all, a very easy thing to do, uh, because you, you learn how to do it uh, in a way that, that uh, you're not trying to do it all at once. Monasticism is like that. It, you're not expected to, to suddenly uh, shave your head, put on a robe, and then be totally transformed into this uh, realized being that, that, that uh, can keep all the rules and, uh, and, not, uh, and not have any, any, anything, have any problems with the life. I mean, oftentimes I wish that were the case, but that's not the case at all. Uh, and at first one resists very much uh, or feels very frustrated and annoyed by the limitations of monastic discipline uh, because if you've been uh, uh, a person who's valued your freedom and, and your independence a lot and, and held these uh, to be most important for your own happiness, then you find yourself in a, in a monastic system full of do's and don'ts and restraints on behavior and speech. Uh, all you can do at first is feel very frustrated and even intimidated and... and and uh, resentful. But these are the very conditions of mind that we look at because it's through through this restraint and limitation, through designating a particular uh, and, and, and taking on a limitation for our lives that we begin to see just these various forms of conceit and desire and fear that, uh, that plague the human consciousness. Now the the the, uh, the restraint itself is based on uh, moral uh, responsibilities. So no matter how much you might resent the discipline and the limitation, you can't really fault it in any way in saying that it's bad because uh, it is it is really good. You realize that what they're asking you to do is be good, and to take on responsibility for what you're doing and saying. And, and then the renunciation of the life, uh, if, you, if you tend to be a greedy person like myself, you, you tend to uh, feel that, that uh, you can't really let go of as much as they imply you should be letting go of. But then through the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and, uh, and the nature of suffering and through the insights that one gets more and more, you feel a sense of real joy and freedom by letting go of everything. In fact, you just love to let go of everything forever. <laughs> but we do have, have certain uh, habitual tendencies which, uh, which keep creeping back in. <coughs> so sometimes you, you, you feel, you know, I'm really, this is, this is the end, let go of everything. And then you find yourself suddenly not letting go of something. There's certain things that one likes to let go of, and then there's other things that one doesn't really want to let go of. <laughs> but through the, the reflection, uh, reflective life of a Buddhist monk, you can 
you can't, even the things that you don't really want to let go of, you begin to want to let go of. Uh, because you see that attachment of any, of any kind, no matter how subtle or even how good it might be, really is uh, the, takes you to that experience of suffering, of some form of doubt, hesitation, uh, dissatisfaction, discontentment. Now, the, the aim of the Buddha in establishing his order of monks and uh, nuns was to uh, base it on alms mendicancy, which means that we have to give up our rights over money and worldly possessions, our property, things like this. We have to renounce uh, our, our, all these, these kind of binding conditions to worldly uh, situations. So you have to depend solely on the good-heartedness of the lay community. Uh, to be a Buddhist monk, uh, you have to trust solely uh, in, in the goodness of humanity because your very existence depends on that. Uh, since uh, uh, in the Theravada school, you, in no way can you, you can't even touch money, you can't, you can't, uh, and therefore you can't buy anything for yourself. You can't till the soil, so you can't grow your own food. You can't uh, even pick up food that's lying about, like apples falling off the tree. You, you're not even prevented from from uh, gleaning food from the from the forests. And the only way the Buddha allowed the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis to get a meal was through giving them an alms bowl. He said, I will allow an alms bowl. So that's what we have. We have an alms bowl. And then the, the idea in the time of the Buddha was to take that alms bowl and go into an inhabited area where people would see you. You're not supposed to ask or beg for anything. And then people whose faith was there, who had good hearts, would come and offer food. And that very ideal of alms mendicancy uh, is still operating, and, and the Sangha still exists, even though it seems to be based on very kind of uh, weak and uncertain types of customs. Because in Thailand, one can take it all for granted, being a, a Buddhist country where the monks do this all the time, and everybody knows what to do. Uh, the doubts came when, when, when the Theravadan monk went to the West, what would happen? Would he starve to death? And when, I, when uh, Ajahn Chah once asked me if I had any intention ever of, of coming, of returning to the Western world, I, at that time I had no intention. In fact, the idea was so horrifying <laughs> that, that I overreacted. I said, no way! <laughs> I said, who would ever feed you? How would you be a monk in America? If I walked down the street with an alms bowl, I'd just probably be throw tom tomatoes at me or something, <laughs> rather than putting them in my alms bowl. And, and so he, he uh, then said uh, to me in a very nice way, he said, you mean to say there are no kind-hearted people in America? <laughs> and that's very, 
And, and I really thought about that, and I well, that's not true. I said, there are. He said, well, then you could go back to the West. Like, I remembered that, because <laughs> I didn't want, I wanted him to agree with me, but he didn't. He said, what he was saying, wherever there are kind-hearted people, there an alms mendicant can live. If, there, if people's hearts are cold and uncaring, then a Buddhist, uh, a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni could not possibly survive. And that obviously the point is to, to be that in a society where those lovely qualities come out in people, where people actually uh, uh, take an interest and just out of good-heartedness offer something. Like food is, is, a, is an essential requirement. We have to eat something in order to survive. It's a basic uh, requisite for survival. And food is also something that that kind people, whether they're poor or, or wealthy, can give. Because in Thailand, I've lived in, in very poor, uh, poverty-stricken areas of villages. And the poor people sometimes are the most generous. The, the, the rice farming communities in Thailand sometimes very, very poor. But they're, they're, they're certainly never end. They, there's, an, there's never any end to their... <coughs> generosity to the to the alms mendicants. So my experience living in England for thirteen years is it's true that people uh, do uh, there are many kind hearted people in England. Uh, and so that my life in, in England has not been one of starvation or abuse but mainly uh, quite an inspiring 13 years of my life where uh, the people do come forth and offer the basic requisites of robes, alms food, shelter, and medicine for the, for the Buddhist monks and nuns. This has uh, also, there's uh, not only from the Asian communities that live in England, because there are a large uh, community of Sri Lankan uh, Buddhists and Thais, but from the British themselves and other Europeans that that come to England, uh, there's been an, an, a, a tremendous generosity and a joy and willingness to offer the requisites to to us. In fact, before I went to England, some of the English monks in Thailand said. In no way would we be able to, to survive as on mendicants because the English just wouldn't understand and they'd probably misunderstand and uh, they went on and on all, all the reasons why it would not work. And I realized, don't believe people, especially if they're natives of that country. <laughs> <laughs> because I found out that they were totally wrong and, and that... Uh, that, there, that this is, has never really been a problem for us. So what this is saying also is that basically uh, the human heart is, has this longing for generosity and goodness when they love and respect somebody. When, when you arouse in their hearts uh, a measure of respect and trust, they're, they're, they're more than generous. They can't do enough for you. 
In fact, you have to calm them down sometimes. <laughs> Say, enough. <laughs> so, so that this is, this is, is a very encouraging sign in a cynical time where people tend to look at humanity in very negative ways as being selfish and greedy and not caring and and if you don't look after yourself nobody will because that's how the world seems in say in if you read the newspapers and just modern uh, cynicism Britain is a very cynical country the British people tend towards uh, seeing things in negative ways and and in, and thinking that the worst is going to happen but that's because the that's the the really how how the mind is conditioned to perceive the world not that they really think that or want to be like that it's just that there's not much of an opportunity uh, to to uh, see any other possibilities where most of the news most of the information is about the corruption meanness uh, and violent side uh, the dark side of humanity and where gossip, scandal, our news of the day, and even your people that are involved in your, in 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 the government and in the in the, in the important uh, positions, uh, are always criticized for for their uh, immorality or their selfishness or corruption. But the human being needn't necessarily be that way because we have uh, we can be. We can be saintly. We can be uh, loving and kind and generous, and that is the, the beautiful side of our nature. And that has to be brought forth. It has to be encouraged. People have to see that it's possible. They need to be able to reflect on the results of of good actions, and the results of good actions, as far as as I have witnessed it, is a happiness and joy. Living within the monastic restraint for 24 years now, uh, I feel only a, a sense of joy and real faith and trust in, in the universal system that I'm uh, um, a part of and, in the, <coughs> and I see the, the pos- potential for humanity not as a, as a as a pollution for the planet, which it tends to be at this time, but a blessing, because the human mind has, is the, it has that potential for divine blessing of this planet. And I think very much that this needs to be emphasized or brought forth again into the consciousness of human beings. And this is very much what we are trying to do in our monasteries in England, because even though we live, uh, I, our, our monasteries are in the countryside, they're not in the cities, uh, yet uh, we relate very much to the, to the uh, lay communities. There's, a, there's a, 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 such an interest, uh, in, especially in meditation, among European people, Western European people at this time. And, and the Buddhist monasteries are open monasteries they're, they're, because we depend upon our basic uh, requisites for survival we depend solely on the lay community for that then you cannot shut them out in any way they they have 
they're needed, they're actually encouraged and invited into the monastery. So there's always a relationship uh, uh, of the monastic community to the lay community. And that if, if you have a good monastery, in, in, say in Thailand, wherever there was a really good monastery with good monks practicing properly, that had a, a, a wonderful effect on the surrounding villages. And because there, there's always this, this mutual uh, relationship of giving to each other, helping each other, the monastic community uh, helping the lay community and the lay community helping the monastic one. In America, uh, I think monasticism is, is just very strange and very exotic because the United States, say, living in a, in a European country, you're very much living within a traditional uh, country that uh, already has a, a traditional attitude. Uh, so traditions and hierarchies and the structures uh, that are implied in these are, are, no, are, are more or less basically understood by people. And, and, there, and also even in a country like England where uh, the, the uh, Christian monasticism was destroyed, brutally destroyed by King Henry VIII 500 years ago. Uh, uh, in another way, there is uh, the British are really would like to have it back again. There's a there's a there's, there's an interest in monasticism because they still they see the ruined monasteries. Uh, in the, the, many of the ruins now are site are places for tourists and sightseers, and there's a a real interest uh, rather than an aversion to to monasticism uh, in. In the United States, where monasticism has never, where it's been, it's existed, but it's never been a, a it's never been the center of anything. It's never, it's more been on the edges and the fringes of, of American life and, and almost unknown by most Americans. Uh, it's a very strange custom, very odd thing to be doing to a country where people worship, freedom, equality, rights and, and privileges uh, in, in, with, uh, in, in regards to their democratic ideals. And that very attachment to those ideals uh, sometimes blinds us to the need to, say, restrain ourselves and to learn how to operate within a, a form that is, isn't isn't necessarily free or equal, but is based on moral relationships and, and moral responsibilities. Like we're often criticized in the Theravada school because we, our bhikkhuni order uh, has disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to it. And, uh, and mo nobody really cares. <laughs> and then, and then uh, the... Uh, uh, the people, Western people, especially Western women, very critical of, of uh, the Thai, uh, uh, the Thai uh, orders of of nuns uh, and monks. Where the monks uh, and the nuns definitely have uh, are unequal. But this is for this is not to defend 
inequality in any way, but I want to bring into your mind that that the that really uh, we're not so concerned with equality in regards to rights as equality uh, in in a mor on moral issues. That it's it's more important to if you're going to make demands for equality, then those demands should be made for equal moral rights because morality is the very basis of a spiritual life. Uh, and, and that if we don't have that, that kind of moral foundation, then we cannot evolve into any kind of spiritual, uh, we can't develop spiritually. And then, the, then if everyone, say, in the Theravada Sangha has equal moral rights, then the discipline varies, like the discipline for monks is is more complicated. We have less rights, less freedom than the nuns. The, the, the two nuns there, they have more freedom, more rights than we do. So it's a different, different way of looking. Uh, as you become a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, your rights diminish and your responsibilities increase. So, so it's not a matter of rights. I mean, lay people have more rights to do what they want and then, 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 the, then any of us. Uh, so if you want rights and freedom, then the lay life should be your path. But if you're, if you're <laughs> aiming at a very, at, at agreed moral relationships and, the, the, and a community whose sole aim is towards liberation and freedom from delusion and the realization of Nibbana for realizing ultimate reality, for us, ultimate reality is realizable within the, in the here and now. I mean, to realize ultimate truth, the, the absolute reality, deathlessness, is the aim, is, is the realization of Nibbana, free from the, the uh, attachments to the mortal conditions. So the, the aim of all of us is, is only to realize that and then we we've created community in England in which the the relationships are based on on moral agreements and on responsibilities uh, to each other and therefore the the actual community is a very harmonious one I think my time's up yes. so uh, I hope this is as as uh, giving you some idea of what uh, at least uh, Theravada monasticism is what we're in intending or trying to to do with it in say in Western Europe. Thank you very much. <laughs>